Well, good morning. Um, this is a different morning, uh, mostly because I've just come to two major birthdays at our house in the last week. I now have a 13-year-old daughter. That's a big gulp. And then, and, and then my oldest, Noah, just turned 19 yesterday, and he had a day of challenges, physical challenges, and then we had a ceremony last night where we, we inducted him into the, the uh, fraternal order of biblical manhood. He's no longer a boy. Our culture lacks any kind of ceremony or demarcation of that transition, and so I've created one for my sons and for other guys. And so it was, it was a fun, fun evening around the fire, just kind of honoring him and speaking into his life. And so the result is we've had a lot of junk food uh, for about seven days straight and then and a lot of exhaustion. And so today I'm a little loopy, and I might just say anything. So the entertainment factor is much higher today. Um, we, we finished Nehemiah. We finished our series in Nehemiah. And uh, I want to just tell you where we're going over the next eight weeks as we head through the summer. Uh, we're going to spend four weeks on biblical worldview. I spent a lot of time praying this week about where we would head in this interim period. And uh, there, there were a lot of great feedback. In fact, we did a questionnaire at the end of life groups this year and asked, uh, what are some of the things you want to hear about, learn about, know about related to the Christian life or the Bible? And as I looked at those things again this week, the, the uh, predominant thought in my heart was, um, those are all uh, application questions to a larger issue, which is how do I think biblically? How do I think biblically about this thing or this, this facet of my life? And so what I want to do is back up and just talk about how we think biblically. So four weeks on biblical worldview, some miscellaneous content as we move into August. We're going to do two weeks on baptism in August because that's going to lead us up to August 22nd, midweek, when we have our big uh, church-wide barbecue and baptism service at Lake Goodwin at um, Winburg Park. Hope you guys can make that. And, um, and then one odd week at the end of August, this is kind of a standalone, and then we're going to start in September the book of Galatians, and we're just going to go all into the fall just studying through the book of Galatians as we explore uh, this concept of a pure gospel. This is why Paul's writing that letter, to, to make sure that the church holds on to the gospel in its purest form, right? So that's where we're headed. Um, in 20 years of ministry, uh, for me, especially working with college students and young adults, uh, guys in, 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 the, in their college age, men and women. Um, I've watched uh, a trend. I've seen something I think is really pretty terrible, and it's the 80 to 90 percent of kids who grow up in churches, who grow up in churches, leave their professed faith by the end of their second year of college or two, within two years after graduating high school. 80 to 90% of the kids coming up in church, coming through the average youth group, by the second year after they've graduated, have left the faith that they once claimed to hold. And I think there are several factors that contribute to this. Some of them are fathers who don't lead their families spiritually or, or simply are just absentee dads, uh, the push of the belief and worldview of evolution and humanism in the culture and in the public school system. I think a contributing factor to this reality is the dumbing down of the gospel and the Bible to young kids in the church because we don't think that they can handle the truth of God's word. And so we paint giraffes coming out of the top of Noah's Ark and elephant heads with trunks. You know, it's like... Come on, man. That's not, you know, we don't think they can handle what the Bible says. Uh, I think there's a failure to impart a biblical worldview. 
in the church, especially to, to young, young people and students by the time they reach high school and all through their high school and college years. So I, I believe it's the responsibility of the local church to answer and address these issues. And that begins with a focus on family discipleship with dad at the helm being equipped to lovingly lead his family in worship and in obedience and in the word at home. Um, and and we, we strive to do some of that as a church by God's grace. We'll grow in that part of our ministry in the years ahead. But in this four week condensed series, my focus is going to be primarily um, imparting a biblical worldview and understanding to you, at least trying to lay a solid foundation so that you have you have a solid place to stand in the culture, in your, in your life, whether you work uh, in a secular workplace, a secular environment, wherever you work, you, you, you can stand firm on God's word and trust it. So the question I wrestle with this week is what did Jesus have to say about solid foundations? Well, in Matthew 7, he tells us about solid foundations. He says, everyone then, in Matthew seven twenty four, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, puts them into practice, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. The word rock there we translate as bedrock. It's it's founded on bedrock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them does not obey them, does not put them into practice, will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The distinction there is not these people heard the words of Jesus, studied their Bible, and these people didn't hear the words of Jesus. They didn't read their Bible. That's not, that's not what Jesus says. He says both groups heard the word of God, both groups had access to the word of God, but only one group obeyed and put into practice the word of God. And that's what I want for us. A strong foundation is more than just hearing truth. It's more than just uh, passive reception. Even, even the true words of Jesus, the, the, the truth has to be embraced personally. You've got to put it into practice in your life for there to be any lasting difference in you. And so my desire is to lay that foundation in your lives that you can build upon. And Jesus would challenge his disciples. He would say to them in Matthew 16, he, he asked them the question. They're at Caesarea Philippi, and he says, well, who do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I'm curious, what are you hearing? And, and they said, some say he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the crux of the biblical worldview. That's the first step of the biblical worldview. Jesus is always pushing his disciples to think clearly. Don't just listen to the clamor in the culture. What do you think? What what does God's word say, right? Don't just accept what you're hearing out there. Asking this same question, by the way, is a great way to open up a conversation about spiritual things with people. Who do you say Jesus is? Some of you just ran through the scenario where you're at work and you ask a coworker that and you just, like a shiver went up your spine. You're like, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. He's just inviting them to share their opinion with you. Who do you you think Jesus is? 
It's a great way to start a conversation. I, I, want, you to, I want you to do the same thing this morning. I want to I push into some of your beliefs underneath your beliefs. Uh, we call those presuppositions. Many people don't know that they have them or even how to articulate them. I want to just rattle some of your presuppositions and, and, um, and then you'll be ready to ask that question when I'm done with you. <laughs> Evil laugh. You ready? We're actually going to interact this morning. This won't, this, there's never, these kind of sermons, talks don't translate well into podcasts because the people listening to the podcast can't hear you, but I don't care um, because I want some interaction this morning. So if you're listening and you're like, it's funny because we have listeners that have like hits in Spain and Japan. And I'm like, who's listening to us in Japan? That's crazy. But um, I want to ask you, what do people say about the Bible? What do they think that it is? Go ahead. Say it louder. What do people say? It's a bogus. It's a book of fairy tales. My secular friends think it's just like a big book of morals. Okay, so some people just, your secular friends think it's a book of morals. It's a big book of morals tell you to believe a lie about a dude in the sky who doesn't exist. Good morals, right? Okay. <laughs> what, what else? What do people say? Yeah, back. It's outdated. It's not, it's not relative to our cultural norms now, right? Anybody else? What do we say? What do, what do the culture say about the Bible? What do you hear? Yeah. It's inconsistent, by too many it's inconsistent. Too many different contributors written over too long a period of time. Yeah, CJ, and then coming back. Mistranslations. It's like the telephone game, right? I mean, Paul said this, and then the next person translated, and then they translated the translation, and they translated the translation of the translation of the translation, and now we've got this garbled mess, right? That's not at all how translation works, by the way. But we'll get to that. Scott. It's the tool of the patriarchy. <laughs> That's probably my favorite one right there. I'm just like... Okay. All right. What do you think the Bible is? The Word of God? Somebody else. What do you think the Bible is? Consistent and true. Consistent and true? Life. It's life, source of life. It's a roadmap. Yeah. Amen. Oh, gosh. You went to the 90s. Who was the song? I don't know. Some 90s Christian group, Basic Instructions Before. I think there's a title of the album on the, on the cover. There's a lot of things that happened in the Christian world in the 90s that we should just probably move past. I, um, here's, the, here's my next question. How do you know that? So it's written in a book. Holy Spirit testifies to that reality. How do you know that the Bible is the word of God? How do you know this whole thing is true? How do you know anything is true? Katie. Because it's completely changed me and the people I love. Okay. There's a testimony of change in your life and in the people you love. Okay. Jake. There is. There's a, there's a huge mountain of historical evidence to back up the Bible. And we're going to get to all this stuff in four weeks. I just, I should back up. I I need to stop. You're going to feel like you drank from the fire hydrant today. 
And I, what I want you to do is just, there'll be one or two things in the course of the next 30 minutes that, that just like hit you right in the middle of the forehead. And you go, oh, oh, whoa. Grab that and hold on to it. Don't worry about trying to take all of this in. Okay, go back and listen to the podcast. Skip the gaps where you were talking. And, and, and listen to it again. Like, ruminate on this, okay? But just today, there's a lot of maybe new information for some of you, okay? So, um, you might not believe this, but there are a whole group of grown-ups who devote their whole lives to a study called philosophy, And then there's a subset of philosophers who spend all of their time, day and night, trying to figure out what human beings can know and what human beings do know. That's called epistemology. It's the study of knowing, study of knowledge. What do we know? What can we know? And then within that subset of that subset of epistemologists, there's a group of them that would say this. We can't know anything at all. And those people seem to be the loudest contributors to our mainstream media and to a bunch of other sources that that feed our cultural noise. We just can't really know anything at all. And so everything becomes relative to the individual, right? Everything, your truth, your reality, your, your self-identification, your, because we can't know anything objectively. That teaching, that belief generates a worldview, and that worldview is now taken over our culture. And there are people who actually would say, we can't know anything at all. And so my question to you is, and don't answer me, this is rhetorical, what would you say if you had the opportunity to sit down and have coffee with an epistemologist who would say, we can't know anything at all? How would you respond to that? How do you know that? It's a great question. How do you know that to be true? You're saying we can't know anything at all. My suggestion is ask them a very simple question. How do you know that we can't know anything? Did you catch that? How do you know, because they're claiming to know something, aren't they, that we can't know anything? That's a pretty arrogant statement to claim that we can't know anything while at the same time claiming to know something, namely that we can't know anything. How does that work? I see, there's just, so you dig at some of the stuff. It's not, it's not that overwhelming. You, you, you think, I have to go to the college campus and go into a big building with columns out front and find a bunch of really old dudes with big beards and, and then sit there and be intimidated and, and find the answers to these questions. It's really not, it's not that difficult. It's, it's not that uh, hard. But you just gotta ask the right questions, right? So if the statement is true that we cannot know anything, then the person who's making the statement couldn't know anything, but they're claiming to know something. They're claiming to know that we can't know anything. It's a self-defeating statement. So here is what I'm calling uh, true truth number one this morning, and that's a nod to Francis Schaeffer, who was a 20th century apologist, philosopher, and Christian theologian. If you haven't read Francis Schaeffer, you you should. Uh, Really great author. True truth number one, we can and do know things for certain. We can know things for certain, and we do know things for certain. And, and as, we, as we accept that that's a reality, that that's a truism, that's, a, that's an axiomatic truth, then a topic very closely related to that knowing is the knowledge of what is truth. Once you come to the realization that you can know some things, and you do know things, the question then becomes, well, what is true. What is truth? Here's our working definition for the word truth. You ready for this? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. 
Truth is that which corresponds to reality. If truth is based on what is real, the reality, then our opinions and our uh, impulses and our feelings do not determine that truth in our world. Our feelings and our impulses determine how we respond to it, but they don't define it right? And so we need to hold on to that. So we talk about truth in two ways, objective truth and subjective truth. And that's a little misleading because objective truth says truth is something outside of you. It's a reality. You can't change it. It just is. And we live with it. Subjective, people who say truth is subjective, what they mean is truth is relative to you and what you want it to be and your experience. I say, well, we may experience reality in different ways, we may feel differently about it, but truth is not subjective. We can't just change it because we feel like it. It's objective, okay? So here's true truth number two this morning. True truth number two is ultimately our opinions don't matter. What really matters is what is true. We need to be focused on what is true. During the trial of Jesus in the Gospels, Pilate asks this question, he says, what is truth? It was the right question at a bad moment. (laughs) And kind of waited a little late in the game to be asking Jesus, what is truth? But if we know things, and the truth is that one of the things we can know uh, is, is truth, how do we go about learning what is true? And is the Bible the right place to learn truth? Now, many skeptics and, and I think lazy-minded people just stop here and they dismiss the Bible as being some of the things that you guys shared earlier, some of man's best thoughts about God. It's our best effort at articulating our understanding about a being that we can't understand. They say that since man is finite and man is limited, man cannot know the infinite or the eternal as God would be. So we can't know him. We can't discover him. And for many people, that's the end of the debate, right? Finite man cannot know infinite God, but what if an infinite God revealed himself to mankind? That would be a very different story. And that's the testimony of the Bible. Not that man has, has searched the cosmos and, and, and tried to attain an understanding of a being somewhere in the heavens at the best of our ability, but that, rather that God came down to man and said, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. I want you to know me and understand me. That's a very different situation. And that's what the Bible claims to be. Uh, God revealing himself to us, not man's best attempt at understanding God, which is why Proverbs says in chapter one that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. That, that fear of God and his vastness and his perfection is, is the place we start. So our knowledge of what is true begins with God and his self-revelation as its basis because that's the source of all objective reality. So here's true truth number three. You ready for this one? The Bible makes the claim about itself that it is God's word over 1,800 times. Now just let that sink in for a minute. The Bible makes the claim about itself that it is God's actual words over 1,800 times. There is no other, and I'm using air quotes, holy book, not the Hindu Veda, uh, not uh, the, the Quran, uh, any other holy writings of any other religion come even close to making that claim about themselves. 1,800 plus times, thus saith the Lord. God spoke to Moses and said, Jesus answered them and said, over 1,800 times. 
That's astounding. So you got two options. I'll just whittle it down for you. Either the Bible is what it claims to be or the Bible is not what it claims to be. (laughs) Right? If you can think of a third option, I can't think of one. And I've been thinking about it for 20 years. There's not a third option. The Bible is what it claims to be or the Bible is not what it claims to be. Now, if 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 it's not what it claims to be, the word of God, you should not only not read it, you should burn it. You should get rid of it. It's a damnable lie straight from the pit of hell. Because over 1,800 times, it's claiming to be God's self-revelation, and yet it's not. It's a deceptive book straight from, the, straight from hell. Get rid of it. Burn it. Be done with it. But if it is what it claims to be, you should not only read it daily, you should be obeying it. You should be looking for ways to put it into practice. It's God's word. Let me just tell you a little bit about this amazing book. It's actually 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years, yet it's consistent and unified in the content that it presents. That's astounding. These guys didn't get together and have a staff meeting together and grab Starbucks and say, let's make a Bible. You take this section, you take that section, you focus on this thing. There's, There's no way. There's no way, right? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and it claims to be the very word of God 1,800 plus times. That claim alone deserves investigation. It sets the Bible apart among other holy texts. And so I love what Dr. Chuck Missler used to say. He said that the Bible is a pool that a toddler can wade in and an elephant can bathe in. What that means is you could study the scriptures as long as you live and and a child can read the gospel accounts and understand the gospel. And yet the scholars who've given 40 and 50 years to the Bible still are discovering the depths of God's word and going, wow, 40 years in, 50 years in. It's amazing. Now, despite all of that, here's the indictment for us as American Christians. Most of us let our Bibles clutter our coffee tables, or gather dust on our shelves. In fact, somebody quipped not long ago, I thought this was amusing, and then it was very convicting, that if all the Christians in the United States simultaneously dusted off their Bibles, the result would be the greatest dust storm that the world had ever seen. I think they're right. I think they're right. And that's sad for us. But if you've been around Emmaus Road at all, you know we're not gonna let our Bibles get dusty. We keep opening them and reading them and reading God's word and letting it get down in our hearts and change us. But in all of this pursuit, scripture itself warns us, here's a warning, don't seek knowledge for its own sake. That doesn't honor the Lord. Paul warned the Corinthian church that seeking knowledge for its own sake, uh, it just puffs up our pride, it puffs up our ego. That's, uh, that's 1 Corinthians 8. He says, so remember that all of this revelation from God is about a person who wants to have a relationship with you named Jesus, not just some concepts that you need to understand. And that keeps us humble. So here's true truth number four. Ultimately, truth is not a concept. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. Truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, Vladimir Lenin, the communist leader of the Soviet Union, claimed that under communism there'd be bread in every household in the Soviet Union, but he could never say these words, I am the bread of life. 
And he that comes to me will never be hungry, and he that believes on me will never thirst. Only Jesus could say those words. You think about uh, Gautama Buddha, who uh, he didn't set out to found the Buddhist religion, but he inevitably did so by the way that he lived. But Buddha died seeking more light. And he could never say, I am the light of the world. He that follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Only Jesus could say those words. Sigmund Freud believed that psychotherapy would heal all emotional, spiritual pain in the lives of people, but he could never say, peace I leave you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Only Jesus Christ could say those words. Jesus in John fourteen six says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Truth is exclusive, men and women. Truth is exclusive, But more than knowing truth, God calls us to obey truth, the importance of obeying truth. In God's economy, you get a little bit of truth, and then if you obey it and you put it into practice, he'll give you some more. Jesus talked about the reality. He says, to him who's faithful with little, more can be added, more can be given. A good steward who's been given a little to steward, who who takes care of that and and cultivates it, the owner comes along and says, hey, you're doing a great job. I think I'm going to trust you with more stuff. And that's the way God works with truth. In God's economy, you get a little truth and you obey that truth. You, you, You wrestle with it, grapple with it, apply it to your life, and then God gives you more. But it's not an effort just to gain more knowledge, right? We're in a relationship. But there's this really cool picture in the land of Israel. There's a contrast between knowing truth and uh, obeying truth. We call that wisdom. The Bible calls that wisdom. Not just knowing truth, but obeying truth. And, And in Israel, there's this vibrant, flowing river that comes down out of the mountains. It's fed by uh, snow-capped mountains in the northern part of Israel. And that river runs all the way down through the land of Israel and, and it runs into two different bodies of water. And one of those is a lake that's surrounded by fruit-bearing trees. It's green and it's lush and it's fertile. And the lake, uh, the sea, it's a big enough lake, they call it a sea, and it's big enough that it, su- it supplies the food for all the surrounding people. And as that river runs through it and on to the next body of water, that second body of water fed by the same river, the same source, is unlivable, surrounded by desert, arid, dry, and lifeless. One is life, the other is death. Both are fed by the same source. What's the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? Well, the answer is simple. One receives that life that's coming in and lets it pass through it and go out the other side. It takes the truth in, takes the life in, applies it, and then feeds it on out the other side. It goes on, it goes through the life. The other one just receives and receives and receives and receives and nothing ever comes of it. It's a great picture of the Christian church in America. There's so many people that just want to receive the word of God. I just want to hear a good sermon. I just want to hear the word. I want to have the feels today. I just want for me, and it never goes beyond me. It never gets back out to other people. It never, we never let become a conduit of God's grace and knowledge and truth into the lives of others. And we end up like the Dead Sea, just receiving, receiving, receiving. And now we're talking about the concept of stewardship. Stewardship means that what we have, what we've been given, is from God, and that necessarily implies that it's not ours to own, but it's ours to put to use for the one who owns it. 
to use it. We're stewards, not owners. God's the owner, it belongs to him. What we have is on loan. So God gives every one of us the stewardship of truth, stewardship of his word, right? And, and, and some other things that he wants us to take responsibility for. Now, early in my marriage to Jen, well, we had, we had kids right away. That was unexpected. Uh, we thought we were gonna have a two-year, you know, kind of grace period to get to know each other, enjoy being married, newlyweds, and God said, baby, and we're like, okay, all right, cool. And he's 19 yesterday. So um, that happened. And, and we were just kind of reeling from that. And as we uh, grew our family, God gave Jen some wisdom, my wife some wisdom. She said, here's the deal. I see Jesus in the scriptures talking about to him who's faithful with little, more can be added. Let's, let's talk about stewardship in our house as like concentric circles, like a target, like a bullseye. And, and in a first circle of stewardship for our kids is like their hygiene. That's a big deal. You have boys, especially when they get to be like 12 and 13. It's like, go get a shower. No, really. Go get a shower. And, and, and so hygiene and clean room and their academics, right? Relationships with mom and dad and siblings, all in that first circle. Second circle, Friends, youth group, church, other things, third circle. You see how this works, right? In a person's life, there are concentric circles of stewardship. And, and so our rule has always been, if you are stewarding first circle well, then you can be entrusted with second. And if you're stewarding first and second well, you can be entrusted with third. But what you can't do is when first circle's going bad and things are hard and you don't like your siblings right now, you can't escape to third circle to get away from first circle. You can't go spend a week at your friend's house to get away from the broken relationship you have with your sibling. You gotta deal with that right now. You're not leaving the house, so you deal with this. Okay? So that, that for us became this idea of stewardship. And, and so think about that for a moment because stewardship's a big deal. Like what are the things in your first circle? As you think about your life, your family, what God's entrusted to you as a stewardship. And, and what is the most important stewardship according to God's word? I'll tell you what it is your heart, not the meat pump in your chest that runs on jelly donuts, but your heart, the, the, what the Bible calls the, the seat of your mind, emotion, and will. It's the center of who you are. That's your first stewardship. And so that first stewardship of your heart determines everything else. We've got to be good stewards of our hearts first and so it's an important exercise for you as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, to take some time, even this week, to sit down and ask yourself, what are some things, both good and bad, that influence my heart? What are the influences in my life? What are the things that are influencing my heart, my, my mind, my thinking, my will, my emotions for good that are moving me towards Jesus and towards Christ-likeness? I, I need to cultivate more of those things. What are some things that are influencing my heart for, for bad, that are moving me away from Jesus and into worldliness and selfishness? I need to minimize those things, get rid of them. We need to be doing that constantly. And now you're beginning to see why truth is so important. Colossians 2, Paul says in verse 3 that all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. 
all the wisdom and knowledge you could ever want to attain. And, and, and we read this verse a minute ago, but I want to read it again. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So truth is exclusive, right? As we steward our hearts, steward our lives, we're looking to Jesus first. Jesus first. This is a... Uh, this is funny. This is kind of where the law of non-contradiction comes into play for us. Do you guys know? Uh, not if you understand the law of non-contradiction. Shake your head if you're like, eh, I'm not really there. Okay, law of non-contradiction is A equals, or A, A equals not A. A cannot equal not A. I know that sounds, here, here, cows are not horses. Is that simpler? Dogs are not cats. Toddlers get the law of non-contradiction. Adults struggle with it. Toddlers understand it perfectly. We used to play this game. We'd be driving through the countryside back in Georgia when the boys were small, and we go go past a farm, and you see the cows, the black and white cows that look just like the ones on the Chick-fil-A billboard. Chick-fil-A, amen? It's Sunday. I'm grieving. Okay, so, so you see the black and white cows out in the field, and, and then we'd say to the kids in the back seat, hey, kids, look at the giant pink bunnies. And the boys would say, Dad, right? Because they know that those are not giant pink bunnies. They're neither pink nor are they bunnies. Those are cows, would come the reply from the back seat. Dad, those are cows. Because children understand the law of non-contradiction. If Jesus is the only way, which he claimed, what does that mean for other religions? Just think on that for just a second. As uncomfortable as it may be for some of us, the implication is that if Jesus is correct and he is the way, the truth, the life, then the implication is that the other religious systems in our world are not the way, the truth, or the source of life. And that's the reality we have to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. And I get this question all the time. Well, don't all religions lead to God? And I'll get, it's so great. There are two different analogies that I get all the time. And you may have heard these two. The first one is the analogy of the mountain. And someone in your life who loves you dearly, sincerely cares about you, will say something like this. Well, you know, God is on top of, the, like, he's at the top of a mountain. And all the paths, all the different religions are like paths, and they all lead up the mountain to God. You ever hear that? Some version of that? Well, the problem is, the claim is that we can't know about all these other religions. And, and we can't be so arrogant as to think that our path is the only one that gets to God. But the claim that the person's making in that moment is even more arrogant. Because they're claiming to know about all religions. Not just the one they adhere to. They're claiming to know that all religions lead up the path of God. And the only way you could know that, given the analogy, is to be where? On top of the mountain. In the place of God. It's a pretty arrogant statement. And so just lovingly say, well, if that's true, you couldn't really know. You couldn't know that all the paths, unless you had walked all the paths and been up the mountain like a dozen times. You couldn't know that. So we just, we just kind of lovingly blow that up. And my other favorite one, my other favorite one is the five blind men eating the elephant. You ever hear this one? There are five blind men and they all are brought into a space where there's an elephant and they're all uh, interacting with the elephant and, and this one feels the trunk and he says, oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tree. 
And this one has the tail. He says, oh, it's like, a, it's like this gnarly rope. And, and so that because they can't see the elephant for what it is, they're only having their subjective experience with the elephant, some part of it. And so they're drawing conclusions about this based on their little experience with this bigger thing. And the analogy says that's what God is like, and you only have your little subjective experience, and so you can't know what God is like. And the, it's like, how do we know that what they're touching is an elephant. How does the person giving the analogy know that it's an elephant? That's cheating. Because now you're claiming to be God again. You're saying there's these five blind guys, but I'm not one of them because I can see the elephant clearly and I know exactly that it's an elephant. So you just ruined the whole analogy for both of us. You should have just blindfolded me and brought me in a room and handed me a rope and said, what is that? Right? See, when people bring these things to you, they're bringing in their presuppositions. They're bringing in their worldview and they're saying, I know these, I know the answer to these problems. You just don't know because you're a Christian. You've got that Bible thing in front of you and you think that's the answer and you just can't see clearly. Well, that's the place of arrogance. These all violate the law of non contradiction. If the person giving the elephant story or the mountain analogy is honest, he or she has to admit that they can't know anything outside of their own experience. And so they couldn't know that all the paths lead up the mountain to God. They couldn't know that the thing in the room is an elephant. And when they finally admit that, they've invalidated their ability to say anything as being true or untrue because all they have is their subjective experience. So we can know things for certain. We do know things for certain. Anyone who says that they don't know anything or that you don't know anything is still claiming to know something. <laughs> don't forget that. What we're really talking about this morning is worldview. We're just talking about worldview. What is a worldview? Why does it matter? It's the lens through which you look at reality. You ultimately look at reality. It shapes the way we respond to the world and the culture around us. We respond to our circumstances, how we see people and interact with people. Uh, And so our challenge from King Jesus this morning is to love him and to love other people enough to know and understand this issue of worldview so that we can help people see where their worldview fails. Where their worldview fails. Now, there are two ways to do that. There's the loving way, which has a conversation and, and enjoys some coffee and just says, hey man, listen, I love you. I really just want to push into this because I, I, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about some eternal uh, significance here. There's the, that's the, kind of the right way to handle that lovingly and there's the wrong way, which is the uh, just like shoot them out of the sky kind of way, right? Um, so, so I encourage you as you have these conversations, choose the path of love and, and respect and grace. But we want to help people see where their worldview views fail and we want to do it in love. Paul would encourage us to this in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 where he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, Peter would say something very similar in his letter, 1 Peter 3. Uh, He says, in your hearts, where you start is by honoring or setting apart Christ as Lord. And then he says, always be ready to give an answer, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for this hope that's within you. And when they want to know, why, is this, why do you have this hope beyond this life? Be ready to give an answer. He says, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. And so here's my challenge to you this morning. The current state of affairs in the church in America is really bad. Now, I'm not talking about the culture outside. I'm talking about the church. 
I'm talking about the church. Not many people in the American church read their Bibles or know what's in their Bibles. Not many people think critically, like I, I want to teach you to begin to think. And, and most people are taught to just go with their feelings, go with their emotions, instead of letting truth lead them in their decision making, even in the church. And so for these reasons and many more, the church is not being effective the way that it should with the gospel and the culture. Jesus said that we're supposed to be salt and light. And if you put salt in someone's food who likes bland, tasteless food, they're gonna be really irritated with you. And if you turn on all the lights in a room where someone likes to sit in the dark all day with the, with the shades drawn, you're just gonna irritate them to no end. You're gonna, you, you're gonna become an irritant. And, you, and so I'm, saying, I'm sharing that with you because you should expect some of that. But pers- persevere, prevail in love and grace, prevail in respect. The problem in our day is, is that you'll get some of this pushback and irritation from some people in the church. Why are you making people uncomfortable with the gospel? Why do you always have to bring up Jesus? Well, because Jesus told us to, and because uh, hell is real, and because, and because Jesus told us to, did I need another reason than just to obey what God told us to do? So I want to take this opportunity to impart these things to you because even though the state of the American church is pretty crummy, I think we can still make a difference. I think there's still time. We haven't been raptured. Jesus hasn't come back. We're here. And if we're here, we're here for a reason. There's still an opportunity to have an impact for the kingdom of God. And maybe our culture will never shift back to its Judeo-Christian foundation, but we can still see, seek and save the lost, and we can still see the church built up. And I can inform you and impact you now as a pastor and, and lay a solid foundation in your hearts regarding God's word so that you stand firm on that and walk in obedience to it and that you can become part of the revival and reformation of the church I believe God is sending on our people, on our land. We move back to a deep faith and devotion to God's word. So think about this as you leave this room today, you are warriors in training. Go ahead, go Zena. Like, see yourself in some armor. Got a shield, sword. I may, I may actually bring my shield and sword. I may just preach with a shield and a sword for the next three weeks, I don't know. And whatever I can do to get you thinking about the fact that God has called you to be a warrior. You are in training. I will always be teaching you to fight with the sword of the spirit. That is my job as a pastor. I will always do that. But sometimes even the best among us need to revisit the basic fundamentals. And that's what we're going to do for these four weeks. So I invite you to just dig in and keep drinking from the fire hydrant, okay? It's a lot. It's a lot. Summary, real quick. I can and do know things for certain. Truth is real and objective and knowable. God's word, the Bible, is true. Ultimately, truth is a person. Jesus Christ. And God holds us accountable for what we do with that truth. My first and most, most important stewardship is my heart. And my stewardship of my heart is going to determine everything else in my life. I can and do no things. I can and do no truth. And my worldview matters. It matters very much. These four weeks of worldview aren't like what we normally do. 
as we go through a book of the Bible and exposit a text, but I really believe this is vitally important for us to understand. And, and while we did not read a ton of scripture today, there's, there's still truth in God's word. And, 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 and this, this all truth here is God's truth. And he can still call us to respond to it. So as we continue uh, in our worship, as the team comes back to lead us, I would just encourage you, if you need prayer today for anything that's going on in your life, I, I encourage you to come find me. I'll be to the side here. I'd love to pray with you. If you're hearing this for the first time this morning, you're hearing these truths for the first time or the 50th time, and the Spirit is moving in you, that you need Jesus alive in you because you don't have this thing, I would love the opportunity to talk with you and pray with you this morning. So I encourage you to come find me. You respond as we sing together.